Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Yes, I do still have a cold. That is why my voice is uh, even more annoying than usual. Uh, This week's episode was recorded uh, at the end of September at the London Podcast Festival with Robin and Josie uh, on stage hosting. Uh, This was Josie's uh, first gig uh, of any kind, I think, uh, since she gave birth to her daughter. And our special guests were Dr Kevin Fong and Professor Mark Miodovnik. Since we were part of the festival on a Saturday night, we were on stage for about 85, 90 minutes in the end. So if you're listening to the version of this for Patreon supporters, you'll get that entire show. If you're listening on the normal feed, you have an abridged version of the show. But if you would like to hear the full version of the show, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as one US dollar a month. Just go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to pledge. Uh... Obviously, uh, we have extended versions pretty much every week for our Patreon supporters, but uh, this week is a bumper-bumper edition since it was such a long live show that we did. So I thought I would mention it at the top. So King's Place Hall 2 was where this episode was recorded. We will be in the big Hall 1 for four nights in December, for nine lessons and carols for Curious People, hosted by Robin with lots of special guests, Josie Long, Grace Petrie, Lucy Green, Ben Goldacre... Ben Moore, She Makes War, Adam Rutherford, Hannah Fry. Tickets are available for that at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons profits from those shows. As always, we'll be going to charity. And if you didn't see the news on Twitter this week, every audience member this year will get a cool 80s retro 2018 Cosmic Shambles Network annual with actual stickers in there as well. That's free for everyone that comes along. Uh, Just a little fun thing we are doing for everyone. So hope to see you at those gigs. And should also mention Book Shambles is now available to stream on Spotify. If that is a way that you prefer to listen to podcasts, you can go on Spotify, search for Book Shambles, and you'll find every episode up there. Now here is this week's episode. These people are wild. Um, the uh, welcome to uh, the recording of a uh, book shambles, Josie and Robin's book shambles. This is uh, uh, very exciting for us because this is the first time Josie has been on uh, maternity leave. Uh, Mark will be talking because Mark has a book out. This is uh, Mark Miodovnik who uh, wrote Stuff Matters, which is a fantastic book about material science. And we did a Dr. Seuss documentary. We did. Where yeah. what's it called again that we made? We made. Um that stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it was it, it was uh, it was the stuff that the uh, emperor had made. It was uh, a non-Newtonian liquid. Yeah, and so it's basically, called... if you if you hold it tight, <laughs> it will behave as a solid, and if you let it, then it becomes a liquid. It has it has this kind of like almost superposition, doesn't it? it? Isn't that cornflour paste? It is cornflour, it is cornflour paste. paste. Yeah. 
but yeah. that is not the not the phrase that Dr. Zeus used yeah. in the book. <laughs> and it is a lady book, but we will be edited into this yeah. podcast, won't it? What was it called, the uh, Dr. Zeus thing? Oh, he don't know what he's doing. So anyway, this is... Uh, and Kevin Fong, who wrote uh, the last... I'm behind on your books, but the book, the, your first book, Extremes, is a fantastic book about, uh, basically, human resilience, the resilience of the body. Uh, Kevin both works as, as, as a doctor and has worked in A&E and all of these things as well, in emergency, and also is an expert of what we will uh, require when we go into space. So in terms of further into space, uh, going to Mars, etc. These are some of the ideas of, of what the human body will have to uh, sustain when Elon Musk is uh, sent up to Mars uh, with all of his favourite paedophiles. Uh, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Ooblick, by the way. Ooblick, that's Ooblick. it. Ooblick, which is, yeah, we, we, we made some, some cornflour paste. It's true that I did go through a phase of eating one-colour meals. I remember that now. I went through, I tried to go through all the colours. Black. It's a very, beige is really easy, by the way. Um, you know, most, most curries are essentially all beige. If you ever make one recently, you'll realise that. That's, unless you get the sag in there. What did you do for blue? I know, blue. And it's, it, there is a, your brain is going, this is poison. Don't eat it. This is poison. Um, what did I do for blue? Yeah, I mean, I probably didn't, I probably failed at that point. I was trying to woo people. I, this was my thing for getting dates. I was like, we're going to have an, one colour meal. You choose the colour. <laughs> I'll cook it. Um, and, uh, and then I said, any colour unless it's... I did a black meal, though. Black meal was easy and delicious with squid ink and, you know, all that oh, stuff nice. and uh, black pudding. I know that doesn't seem to go with squid, but um, it looks great. Um, <laughs> Uh, what else did I do? What was White your yellow meal? Yellow meal, of course, sweet corn and, right. and uh, you sweet know, mango. Corn. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. Why I was single for so long. So anyway, welcome to Josie and Robin's book shambles. Right, I'm going to start off with a question which is not about anyone's work, but I need some help. I have to get rid of 1,000 books, right? Because I have oh. way, way too many books, and I've, I've decided and to. Sorry, did your wife initially say you have to get rid of 10,000 books and you haggled her down? No, she was very... She went, you don't have to. But somewhere behind the tears, I could <laughs> see that she would really like that. Because I genuinely used to... I would, I would sometimes, after I'd been down charity shops, I was in Shoreham recently. Shoreham in, in, uh, near Brighton has a fantastic charity shop. And there was, I just couldn't resist all of these different things. And then I had this thing where I go, if I get back in time, she will still be at work. And, I, and then it turned out I hadn't known it was a half day because it was the beginning of term. And I have genuinely, yet again, hidden some books under our shed. And... <laughs> That suggests an I issue. that story was going to end in a different way, and I'm so glad it was just that. Well, well but I'm trying to work out, because every book that I buy, I want. So if you look at the book, you go, but I bought it for a reason, because it has something in there. And what I've started off by doing is doing things like, you've got to face up to it. You may well never read any of the books of Foucault. Right, I really, oh, I'm very interested in discipline and punishment <laughs> and the nature of sexuality. But look, you've got six of them and you've just bought a seventh and none of them have yet been read. You can now cut that down to just one, right? So I started that. 
Baudrillard is another one where I go, well, I saw The Matrix and I found it very interesting. And so, but actually, I probably only need one of his books. I don't need the eight books. So that's got me down 160, I reckon I've got rid of. My next system is to go people who I think are cruel or unpleasant Ooh. or have recently been, you know, incriminated in court for acts that are just, I just go, do you know what? I've got lots of other books on this subject. Robert, where do you put them, by the way? Where, where, where do they go? Do well, they, they're going to go. They actually places. go somewhere. Well, in fact, some of them will go to listeners to this show because anyone who on on Patreon who sponsors every week, we will do a draw and they'll get like forty of my books, which then will contain a postcard which is incriminating towards me, and they'll also work out the pencil marks that I've left in the book that are, you know all that. Um, then some of them are going to a prison library. Um, well, and uh, just books in case the incriminating postcard, I've sent them ahead. Um, books by cruel and criminal people are going to be sent to the prison library. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fine, isn't it? It'll be like revision <laughs> when they get back out again. No, so I've got... Uh, and then some of them will go... Lots of them will go to the charity shop. I, even the charity shop says, could you just bring them in fewer bags? <laughs> We're they, overwhelmed. I had this party once, was, and I asked everyone to bring their least favourite book, and then they were to walk around the party. You know parties are awkward, you don't know everyone. You could just read at will to someone else. I thought this would be a great wheeze. Anyway, at the end of the party, I advertised that we were going to burn the book that everyone agreed was the worst book. And this seemed like a good thing to do. And then the time came, it was about one in the morning, we went onto the roof and we'd all agreed that this book was going to be burnt. I won't which mention book? which one it is. I can't mention it. Oh. Um, but was it was my also, book. We actually <laughs> burnt this book as a sort of... There was only about ten people left at that point, but we all burnt this book on the roof, on the, on the barbecue kind of thing. And it's a terrible book, but I felt so awful. It, like, burning a book is... like That is the one way you cannot get rid of books. That just is... You know, that is verboten. It is, there is just, it just speaks of a whole ignorance and, you know, descent into anarchy, <laughs> which stays with you and stays with me today. So, anyway, if you're thinking of burning some of your books, Robin, uh, I would advise against it. No, I'm not going to burn... I mean, I find that there's sometimes there's books that I've read which I've considered to be so misleading or, or ill-informed that every time I see them in a charity shop, I think, I'll buy that so no-one else has to. But that's another reason why I have to get rid of a 1,000 books <laughs> due to these kind of habits. This is my Anne Coulter library. Yeah. <laughs> my Anne Coulter books have never lasted that long. I don't know if any of you have ever any read uh, Anne Coulter, who for some reason is used by the BBC, one of the strange, scurrilous and ridiculous things they do as a news outfit now. And I have a book which is her explaining why uh, the theory of evolution is inaccurate, uh, which, first of all, lacks footnotes, so you can tell it's dubious. But apart from that, it's... it's, it's but I used to try and read it like, uh, in front of audiences in public... Sh but I would, I'd get three pages and then go, ah! And it would just go to the back of the tent at that particular festival. So slowly it just fell up, you know, mm. again, through mutation, heredity, and eventually natural selection. It mm. turns out the binding of the book was not strong enough to keep it together. And so it wasn't destroyed by fire, merely by its own ineptitude in glue. And that seems, that seems an OK way for a book to die, doesn't it? That's, that's a cremation bad... But, you know, general falling apart so the thing, you know, you, the book is no longer a, a coherent piece of work. That seems a natural, that's the natural ending of a book, isn't it? That's okay. I what guess. was it about that book? Don't say what the book was, but I'm, I'm, what was it that meant that at least 10 people felt it should be barbecued? If I say that it was from a French author, does that kind of get you into the right territory? There was the pretentiousness about it that I think at that time of night, and the kind of friends I have <laughs> had, you know, pushed, you pushed had back a on us. Proto Brexit book burning. 
I think, you know, I think uh, it was, yeah, it, it, it had the, maybe it was, maybe it was the early performance the of, the, of the Brexit, so right, which I now have recoiled from, but in those early days, foolish as I was. Was it scientific? I mean, was it a book perhaps about kind of, uh, was, it, was it Derrida? Was it kind of no, one of those No, it wasn't a classic. You're just, just going to have to tell him, actually. <laughs> I, I, I feel like this can this run and run, yeah, actually, yeah. this. Was it a man or a woman? <laughs> did, you, did you burn the English translation or did you uh, burn it in its original French? You're right. The English translation was the burnt version, and that maybe that you know that oh, shows, stop, that shows stop I wasn't worth. I think you're being very kind. <laughs> come on, Mark, admit it. What was it? We'll, we'll come back to this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want I don't want the author to get in touch. But I love the fact that the clue was merely it was French. <laughs> I mean, they're good at there's a lot of writing out there that that hasn't. Has someone else worked it out? Someone else know what the infuriating French book could be? Oh, oh God, what do you wow, think really? it is? I think it's atomised by the It, it by is atomised by the Oh, wow! <laughs> you go through to round two. That was... Wait, wait. What, that was the most exciting thing. <laughs> what just um, happens? Yeah, that's true. Um, and you've got to admit, haven't you? No, um... <laughs> Why the is other it so bad. I mean, I, that now I'm, I'm glad you've said that because I've got a <laughs> I copy didn't... of it. I haven't read it. That is now another of the books in the thousands. Super. Every time. This is what we should do. We always ask people what they love, and if we've got everyone here to suggest a book they hate, you could get rid of about a hundred books. <laughs> yeah. Straight off the bat. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's just that also um, not wanting to be all about me, but uh, the so my my book stuff matters. The one previous to this one that's just come out called Liquid. Um, that has been translated into many European languages, but not into French. And I feel somehow, and my publishers are like, we can't understand it. It's you know, German and it's Portuguese and it's, you know, it's Romanian and Estonian. Like, but the French are holding out. And I go, I know why. <laughs> I can't tell you why, but I know why. <laughs> I found the film confusing, but there we are. I've not done the book. Right. Um, I... I said what I can say about that. I still regret so... burning it, by the way. No, I think you're right. I and I do have is. a little bit of the burnt book still. That's quite... I kept it in a bottle as, as a reminder. That's like keeping a bone splinter of your <laughs> enemy, don't... isn't it? That's I kind don't... of a terrifying <laughs> thing to do. Can I say, so far today, I've learned that you throw incredible dinners and parties. <laughs> I'm so, like, both of those, I'm like, those are good nights. That's exciting. <laughs> but it good, starts good. fun. Yeah. Hey, we're making oobleck. <laughs> it's like a liquid. Burn the books. <laughs> Not cat in the hat. Not cat in the hat. We haven't even talked about the washing machine party yet. Yeah. Um, Kev, what, what, uh, while we're on weird... We will come back to the washing machine party, don't worry, Kev. Uh, the, um, what do you have... Are, are there certain areas of books... As, as a scientist, I mean, I certainly know there are some books where I will find that, that in Radio 4 there'll be a bunch of scientists saying, don't read that book, it's been, you know, poorly researched, it's not... You know, do oh. you find there are certain books that you will sometimes... You don't have to name <coughs> them, but eventually someone in the audience will work it out. Um, <laughs> that uh, you just go, oh, I've, I've got to recommend people away from this book. I don't know. I, I, I've never felt so strongly about a book as, uh, uh, as Mark has. But, but, but the, the brand of books that has frustrated me recently, actually, are, are all these decision books and the ones that say, if you do these things, you will make better decisions. I think, and actually, which is why I've been trying to write the 
book that I'm currently writing because, because I do that, right? So, so you read these books by people who say, you know, if you do this and you just think, if you don't try and take on too much information, you know, if you thin slice the whole thing, you, you'll be much better at everything. And then you think, well, I, my life is spent making decisions. And, and actually, and I had this moment where I, mean, I work with one of the air ambulances. Um, and, and when you go out to a job, the phone goes, you jump in the vehicle, you fly out to God knows where. And as you get over the site, you don't know what you're going to. And the pilots put the vehicle in this 45-degree bank. And so the, the window next to you becomes the floor suddenly. And you're looking straight down in this total catastrophe on the floor. And I remember one moment, just having this moment of panic as I looked down, and I thought, if, I, if in the back of this aircraft now was every book written about decisions from Descartes to, to Daniel Kahneman, if I would read them all now and understand every word, I still wouldn't be any better equipped getting off this vehicle when it gets on the ground. And at that point, I, so, so, so I started to think, there must be a better more honest way of talking about decision-making than has been written so far. So it's not any particular book, but it's just I read these books now and they don't ring true to me. They're, they're, not, they're not what really happens. They're not how the real experience of making a proper life and death, get this wrong and bad things happened decision feels. And I don't think that very many people who write those books have ever been in those situations. So, so that's the brand of book I sort of have started to get a bit upset by. I wouldn't go and barbecue any of them, but, 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 but you know. Right. But it's, uh, originally I thought you were talking about choose your own adventure books, which I was a little more inspired by. It says, you know, should, I, I couldn't yeah. work out whether to go in the cave or pick up the sword. And uh, anyway, the air ambulance crashed eventually. So, uh, but I, but that, so it's the kind of stuff inspired by Daniel Kahneman, I mean, I'm inspired by, because that has a bit like Freakonomics not that long ago. Once Freakonomics came out, suddenly this idea, publishing goes, wow, different books which explain how the world of economics is actually happening the whole time around and why your chocolate costs this much and why this pedestrian, you know, all of those. So it's that kind of thing that maybe one book would be enough, but in the popular psychology world, it, you, you feel it's a flooded market? So, so, so po possibly, I, I, I quite like Daniel Kahneman's book because actually he's quite honest. He, he, at the end of it all, he sort of says, I'm just describing how this stuff happens. I'm not really in control of it. If I knew how to make better decisions, I'd make better decisions. But actually, there is a different brand of book which sort of says it's all easy. This is, I've, I've looked at these people and all they have to do is this and everything will be better. And it sounds really, really compelling. But having been in the situation where I've turned up on scene and been in that moment, your brain is just a mess. And there's nothing about you that says, oh, what was chapter four of such and such book about? And I, I can just apply that here now. <laughs> you know, the fact that you're on fire and everyone else is on fire doesn't at all modify your thinking process, doesn't seem to be a thing. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, like I say, actually, Daniel Kahneman's book, I don't think, is centrally about how to make better decisions. It's telling you what a mess that thing is, but that's not the message that people have taken away from it. People have said this is a shortcut, to, to understanding how to make better decisions. And I don't think there is one, not really. Can I ask you about the bit in it where he talked about fire, the firefighter who, t who talks yeah. to him about... Because that's as close as I, I think to your job, right? And he says the firefighter d denies that he's thinking through things rationally. He's instinctual. And there is this thing called instinct. And presumably you... Well, what do you think of that? Yeah, and it's really difficult because, I mean, I, so I was an astrophysicist before I went into medicine, and I remember my first few years on the ward, I used to sit there in the middle of... So my job was... I, I was the uh, medical emergency response team in one of the big hospitals. I, I was St Thomas's Hospital, which is an amazing place to be a doctor because uh, all, the, all the big acute wards face, face Big Ben, and so you'll be in this drama of someone else's life 
uh, and you'll be facing, you know, Big Ben as it's about to strike midnight, and it's like a super dramatic moment. But I used to try back then and do my medicine like I would do my algebra, which is like, well, he's got this many symptoms, and these things wrong, and this is the evidence I have, and therefore this diagnosis must be favoured probabilistically over this diagnosis. None of that stuff, none of that stuff worked. And you just had to look at the patient and do what my senior colleagues called the end of the bedogram, which was just kind of look at them and think, what do you think is going on here? And sort of make this impressionist sense of the thing. And that's what was going on. And so he talks uh, in that book, and other people have talked about the firefighter on the roof. And I think actually it might even be a Malcolm Gladwell book where he talks about the firefighter being on the roof and suddenly realising um, that something's wrong, getting everyone off the roof, uh, and then the roof collapses. Now, is that real? Is that, was that his experience coming... In some, in some unconscious process, maybe, maybe. Is that a story he tells because it's the time when the decision worked out well and actually he's not telling the time that everybody died and it didn't go well? Well, <laughs> who knows? Mm-hmm. And, and certainly we tell ourselves stories. I know we do this. And, you know, I, but actually, I'm, the, the, the book I'm writing at the moment has been, been very difficult to write because in part it's sort of processing all these places you've been. And we tell each other stories. We tell each other stories about the things that we've done. And it's partly, you know, part confessional, uh, part sort of uh, you seeking sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, the the approval of your colleagues that actually it was okay to fuck up like that and that actually uh, you can carry on going even though that one worked out badly. But they are stories. And, And, you know... When you read what people tell you about the way the brain works under pressure in those real-time environments, it tells you that you are vulnerable in all sorts of ways, that you don't know what's going on, that you can't track the passage of time very well. And that afterwards, when you come out of it, the story that you tell is just that. It is a story. It doesn't actually bear much uh, resemblance to the facts of the thing. And so, you know, I I think it's much messier than than anyone ever acknowledges. And I think that you should... You don't look at those people as heroic, because I don't think it is that, but you should certainly pity them more, because I think they are in a lot more trouble in the moment than they think they are and the average person thinks they are. See, that's a, a th- I remember a friend of mine who was at the beach and uh, his, his young daughter was out paddling and then suddenly a wave just seemed to come out of nowhere and she got picked up by the wave. And he says he has absolutely no memory whatsoever of running into the sea, of picking up his daughter, of swimming back... And then the moment that he was on the beach, suddenly he went, oh, I'm back again now. <laughs> and I find that a fascinating part of, of, of neuroscience, of us understanding the brain. Is, it's the old line by the, by the wonderful Ken Campbell, who said, you know, uh, uh, me is just one of the things my brain does. And that's the <laughs> bit where you go, the, the yeah, idea man. that this friend of mine, the moment that that happened... His conscious self was not required. Something else inside there, something, you know, whatever it was, Mm. the genetic link, the fact that that is his project, that is now another part of the brain that says, you don't need you, I'll get on with this bit. Now you can come back again as you make her feel better. Yeah, and and that's the point, isn't it? That so much of this stuff in the moment, in real time, making those real decisions, although you read the court document that says, first he did this and then he did this and then she did that and he did that and she did this, actually that chain of conscious causal statements is just the story you're telling about thing. So much of it happens beneath the level of consciousness and especially exactly that sort of fight or flight survival thing. And, and so it must be, it must be true. So I think we should be kinder on ourselves, really. I think we should have more self-compassion about those moments. And there are things you can do to help yourself in those moments. But I don't think it's about 
learning to be a better decision maker. You know, we love, we can't, and we've all been, suck, haven't we, suckered into that sort of Hollywood scene of Tom Cruise in slow motion as the car flies slowly over his head and he realises in that moment that's played out in five seconds in the, in the movie that he can reach behind him and grab the spanner and undo the wheel before it hits the bag or whatever. And, and of course, that's not how it happens. That moment happens in a moment. There is, you know, there's literally not enough time for the, you know, the, the, the wave of ions to run down the neuronal circuits in your brain in that time. See, that's so, the kind of chat I like. <laughs> <laughs> but in, coming back to instinct, I mean, so that thing about the saving his daughter from the... That, I mean, that's, that's instinct in one sense of the word, right? Because... You know, it's instinctual, but but actually, all the actions—swimming, grabbing—they uh, they were learnt. They were learnt through his childhood, presumably. And 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 when you get to extreme kind of saving of lives, you know, it's the practice. Surely, the practice of it makes the instinct work. I mean, surely there's this—you can't suddenly be good. You can't suddenly have instinct. You you learn instinct. So, so yeah, and, and so that's the problem, isn't it? Well, we could it? do a test. <laughs> Kev's done operations before. <laughs> I've We're got a baby. We're going to bring in two people who have heart murmurs and they're both under the clock going to see who repairs it first. Guys, I've got a blank sheet of paper right backstage. She's three months old. If we want to experiment, now's the time. <laughs> no, I, I don't... When did you decide to put your child in Skinner's box? Well, <laughs> it was the pressure of the audience watching. <laughs> Um, we haven't really asked you about specific books yet. yet. And um, if you uh, don't know the podcast, we do tend to sort of get people to talk about their favourite books. And I feel like we ought to um, ask you about, uh, yeah, things that you've really loved, things that recently you've been reading. Can I tell you about my book? I'm just coming out. Is no. That? I'm not allowed to do that. No. That would be narcissistic, and that's the last thing. That... Yeah, actually, Mark, you've written a new book, haven't you? <laughs> Where have you gone with this one? So this one, Liquid, obviously, is... Uh, Stuff Matters covered a lot of different ideas, material science, and our understanding of, of different uh, elements and their structures. So, so Liquid, where, what are you going with, going with so, that? So the world around us, the stuff that you're sitting on and the stuff that we're sitting on, all this building around us, all the technology, that's what Stuff Matters was about. Where did that material come from? Like, when we were evolving on this planet, none of that existed. We've managed to... This triumph of humanity managed to get the rocks and transform them into all this stuff. Um, and when I was thinking about another book, I was thinking, well, but yeah, there's another state of matter that's not the solid stuff, it's the liquid stuff. And that's, how do you get your head around that? What is that stuff? Because we've invented lots of different liquids and wine and beer and tea are good ones, right? <laughs> but also, you know, rocket fuel and uh, all these other ones. And I, I think, what's their characteristic? What, what's the thing that, you know... Uh, really defines them. How do you define a liquid, and, and especially in, in, in relationship with humans? And, and I came to the conclusion that they're sort of anarchic. I mean, they really—they're the bit you can't control often. And we try to control them because they're so powerful. They, you know, they allow us to get drunk, or they allow us to have pleasure, or they allow us to fly a thousand miles. But if you get it wrong with them, they bite you. And they're, so they're like a cat in a way. You know, they'll, they'll tolerate you, and they're nice to hang around with, but you can never own them. And that's my hypothesis in the book. And I go through that, and, and the way I was, I was trying to think, how do, you, how do you write a book about that? That seems a kind of nebulous topic. Um, and I was washing it around in my brain, as I guess people do, and, and anyone does who writes books. And um, I was at an airport, and then I fell foul of the security again. And they were like... you were trying to bring too many cats on. <laughs> it was the cats and the liquids. And they were like, you've got this peanut butter in your... And I'm like, yeah, of course I have. Because... And they're like, well, you know, peanut butter's a liquid. I'm like, no, it's not. And they're like, 
yes, it is, sir. And I'm like, it was America. And, um, and I was like, oh, uh, yeah, it is, you're right. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the place to start a book about liquids. This is the way they frisk you for your liquids. This is where they... Peanut, peanut butter is a liquid. The moment you mention something delicious, that's all we're facing now. Also, I was, I was so disappointed to hear an expert say that peanut butter is a liquid. Like... It just feels like you can't be a real expert. That's, yeah. it's, it's a paste. It's a paste. It's every right. paste a liquid. Now we're into it, okay. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, it's good. It's paste a liquid. Well, and so what threat, what, is that, that, what threat does that pose to an aircraft? Yeah. <laughs> we can do make it claggy. Yeah. Which is what the book's all about, which is why is there that 100 milliliter limit? What is that about? Um, why can't we invent technology that can scan liquids and tell you what it is? That seems a pretty obvious thing to do. We all have smartphones. We can get to the moon. We can save people's lives and take their hearts out, replace them with other hearts, and they live forever. Well, not forever, but... And we can't tell the difference between peanut butter and, you know, nitroglycerine. That seems mad. But then if you look at the chemical compositions of peanut butter and nitroglycerine, they're both liquids, by the way, uh, <laughs> you realise that they're very similar, actually. That would be such a great joke of, like, if you can't tell the difference in peanut butter and nitroglycerine, you're not making me a sandwich. <laughs> Classic. That's what the security guard said, anyway. Um, yeah, so then, so then the whole book is about this journey that, I take on an aeroplane, which we all take, and um, all the liquids that make it possible and all the risks that you take that we're trying to constantly mitigate with liquids. Because as I sort of warmed to the topic in the, in the, in the book, I realised that, you know, you, know you, you build a bathroom and you can kind of, let's say, it'll stay there, it'll do its thing, it'll be a bathroom, you can wash and you can all do that, sort of thing, wash your teeth and everything. But the liquids in them, they're always... You know, you're ambivalent about them. They're, you love washing in water, but then you've got the liquid soap, and the liquid soap you have a strange relationship with. You're sort of slightly suspicious about it, aren't you? If you're, especially if you were born, you know, more than 30 years ago when it didn't no, actually, exist. I'm going to put that to a vote. Um, <laughs> who here is suspicious of liquid soap? There you go. Straight up. That's, I yeah, because that's... A, I've never felt that. What? Like, it's interesting. Now I will I've... be a lot more suspicious. But I've never... Bef- the, this is... He's taken the chaos out of the box and he's not going to put it back. No. Fucking peanut butter's a liquid. <laughs> liquid soap suspicious. You go into the bathroom anyway, in a, in a public bathroom, you press that button, it squirts it into your hand, you think, that wasn't a very pleasant experience, was it? I mean, that feels a bit like a little pet that you pick up as a kid that suddenly pisses itself, doesn't it? You're like, and it's a tiny bit of liquid. You put it straight under the water, and then half the liquid flows away, and then you think, is this, you know, they're calling this an antibacterial, but is it really antibacterial? Is it any better than that bar of soap? Where's the bars of soap con in our lives, by the way? Is this stuff just a marketing exercise? There's these insane number of adverts I've never about... I've seen a man who's found so many different alibis for why he smells. Oh. I'm afraid it's my suspicion of the liquid You've soap. You've been talking to my wife about this. Of course, I do come from that generation when you don't have to wash, have a shower every day. I, horror in the audience. But surely That's... this is, has been sold to us. I'd like, this I'd like idea say, Mark, of... I, I think I'm probably from the same generation. I wash every day. No, no, I mean... But you don't have to have a full body shower every day. But there's silence. Just, <laughs> you might as well do the full body though if you've turned on the shower. I'm not putting my but bum then, in. But then you see what? So anyway, the whole thing. So the peanut butter's all clogged up the shower head. <laughs> don't use peanut butter. Use water. Well, no. I've told you before, it's a liquid. I shall use it, Mass. 
Interesting story about liquid soap, where it came from, even though you're not interested, but I'll tell it to you anyway, really? which is that... No, we're more interested in your paranoias. I... That's why I find... <laughs> It's, I'd, I'd always thought that you went into material science because of the joy, not of the suspicion of each one of the materials. I'm certainly suspicious of liquids, it's true. And in fact, it, I, there has been some criticism of this book that it's a bit too kind of, oh, alcohol, it's going to kill you. That's the reason why you call it intoxicating, because it's toxic, it's a poison. And they're like, what are you, relax, Mark, come on, you like a drink, you've got a beer on stage anyway, so why, what are you worrying about? But actually, the thing is that actually most of these liquids are really dangerous. And trying to work out whether they're going to get you in the end or not is, um, <laughs> is something of interest to me. But how do gases, like... This oh, is genuinely don't worry, yeah. gases. <laughs> that's the end of the trilogy. But that's, that's, the, uh... that's genuinely, like... In a couple of years' time, we'll talk about gases. that's what I thought, like... I compl- I'm very excited to hear you talk about liquids in in sense of, like, volatility and unpredictability, but then, like, gases, yeah. they're going to be... Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a whole different state of matter. And... Um, nice. And you're right. I mean, they, if you think about your relationship with gases, uh, that is a completely different relationship, isn't it? They're sort of invisible. And, you know, of course, you rely on them. You're breathing them in right now. Uh, and they're mostly invisible. They're mostly tasteless. They're mostly, you know, are all around us. And yet, you know, and yet they're incredibly important in our lives, but, but more in a less obvious way than liquids. And, and clearly, that's, that's a different thing. But the, the, the move from liquids to, to gas, that we were just saying before, how that state of matter transformation is absolutely key, not just to the current world that we live in, but also to, to the future if global warming pans out, which it looks like it is, because so much of the world relies on air conditioning. It, just to be habitable. You know, you go, to, you go to the tropics, you go to America, you go to China, and if you're not in an air-conditioned place, you feel absolutely exhausted. You, you know, you're sweating. It's very hard to think, to do your stuff. That air conditioning all relies on a transformation from a liquid into a gas, and that's how your fridge works as well. And these are very special liquids, um, which have melting, you know, boiling points that are specially tuned to, to the, you know, five degrees, so a boiling point of five degrees. And... Um, and, and, and why, it, why it cools things, of course, is there's a bit of energy that you have to take out, um, uh, well, sorry, put into a liquid in order to, it's called the, you know, um, what is it called? <laughs> uh, the latent heat. Uh, the latent heat, thank you very much. Yeah. And um, it's that, there's that heat that, that you're pulling out of your food in your fridge, and it's that heat that gets pulled out of you and, and the seats of a car or the bus that you're travelling in, and it's that heat that cools the, the building. And... And air conditioning, I mean, if, if, you know, if we didn't have air conditioning, quite a lot of the world would become very, very unpleasant. And as, as global warming continues, air conditioning is going to get really, you know, really even more important, probably in Britain. And the story of it, of course, is of danger and death, because the early liquids that we used were called CFCs. And everyone thought they were inert, and everyone thought they were completely harmless. And in the end, they ended up frying the ozone layer. And we're still living with that. There are huge holes in the ozone layer because of early liquids. So again, we're back to this thing. As soon as you dive down into these amazing, incredible liquids, you find that they betray us, right? <laughs> so this is, so basically it this. went wrong somewhere in Planck time, just after the Big Bang, the moment of cooling, <laughs> and uh, at that point, the, the full formation of particles. So you're happy if it's... like So a mug, right, <laughs> this is... 
solids, their stability doesn't lead to paranoia. Well, not just but that. The, right, you're okay. putting your personality. Our humanity is in those solids. We we imbue them with us. They are us, actually. You, you're not human without your stuff. You 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 take it all away. You become naked. You will quickly revert to not a human type. But liquids, liquids and anarchic, they get up to stuff on their own. They flow. They they'll you know they'll they'll. You know, in, in, the, in the case of a tsunami, they will kill hundreds of thousands of people. No problem at all. All the big natural disasters, liquid. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I've looked into it. Uh, when the earthquake, the Fukushima earthquake happened, 5% of the people who were going to die in that earthquake died because of the earthquake. 95% of them died because of the tsunami that came But 100% afterwards. of them were alive because of the solvent that allowed them to be alive that was water. I know, and that's the thing about water. It kills you and it nurtures you. This is the thing. We're talking about the, you know, the, the going into the abyss, but water is one of those... It's, it is, it's a universal solvent. It is the, it's the thing that you look for in another planet if you want to find life. Is there water? Is there liquid water there? That's the thing everyone looks for. Why? Because it's got this amazing property. It will dissolve salt. You know, if you swim in the sea, you'll know it's got lots of salts in it and potassium and sodium and all these things that you might need to build an organism. But it's also got carbon molecules in it. Now, carbon molecules often build oils, and oils and water don't mix. We know that. But, it, but actually, water will dissolves some carbon molecules. And so it's got both the carbon molecules and it's got the minerals, and that's very unusual in a liquid. It's the universal solvent, and that's why everyone looks for it. And it's rare in the universe. It's very, very rare. You look in the universe, what do you see? You see plasma in the form of stars, you see gas, and you see some rocks. You see hardly any liquid in the universe. And we've got a lot of it here, which is why Earth is so amazing, but also deadly. Can I... Can I, can I so... <laughs> Kevin, as a doctor, what can we do to protect ourselves against liquids? <laughs> yes. Well, of course, having listened to Mark now, I feel like we should just ban all liquids and uh, we'd all be much... just desiccate ourselves and medicine would be a lot simpler and less messy. That's true. Uh, of course, but, but, the life but, forms of the future probably will be solved, yeah, won't I, they? I feel, Computers, I feel you're AI. Un undervaluing the, the benefits of some liquids. Blood, blood would be one of the ones I kind of... It's quite useful. We've only got a minute and a half, and I was going to say I, I read a fantastic book of poems that I wanted to recommend, and maybe we could each recommend something to finish the yeah. show. Yeah. Does that sound good? <laughs> um, I read a collection of poems called uh, "If They Come for Us" uh, by uh, Fatima Razgar. Um, and although I've never said her name out loud and I've never heard her name said out loud, so I might be grossly mispronouncing it, which is kind of annoying um, of me. But um, it is a really, uh, it's, oh, it's such a fantastic collection of poetry. I recommend it to all of you. Um, it's about uh, place and family and it's about how trauma passes down generations. But it's also just got like, fun poems about being a little girl and interesting poems about what it means to be a woman now. It is so great and so beautiful. And I also, if, like me, you've just had a child, um, it, you can read a poem in a minute and a half and it can take you so deep and so mm. intense and so far and it's so economical <laughs> in terms of participating with beauty and culture and history and knowledge. And that's been a lifeline, that and Take a Break magazine. Um, <laughs> similar lengths of time. Sometimes very positive about <laughs> the majesty of human and sometimes she married a serial killer. The, um... Falling in love with a ghost. <laughs> A ghost mouse. Oh. The, um, I found it uh, 
that, that just mentioned the poetry. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. It, there was there's a book that came out earlier this year, which was the first book that was written by by someone who was actually experiencing dementia. Uh, and it was serialised by Radio 4. And do look it up, Trent, because it just I, I only heard the serialisation, but she was talking about so all Jenny... of the things that she's adapted oh. to, for her life, and she can no longer read thrillers and things like that and novels, but she just goes, I now look at it positively. It's now drawn me towards poetry because her memory can... It's a very... Yeah, the, from what I heard, the, the, the uh, Radio 4 book of the week uh, was, was just very beautiful in terms of her own exploration of what she can no longer achieve and what she can achieve alternatively instead, as opposed to merely feeling a sense of desolation. Yeah, and it's a whole other use for poetry, although use sounds too uh, prosaic, right? But it's a whole other way that you can understand how culture is useful. Ah, stop using the word useful. It's difficult. I haven't slept. But it's, it's a whole other way that you can understand what it means to be human and the ways that we interact with culture and stuff. Yeah. Mark, what about you in terms of uh, for you know optimism, yeah. joy, delight? What are the things that you're reading? I've just read East Westry, which is um, I've forgotten the author, but he's a UCL professor actually of international law. Uh, really hugely recommend oh, it. Oh, we got the yep. answer down there. Philippe Sands. Oh, Sands. Yeah, Disappointed Sands. it wasn't the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna lie. Uh, yeah, thank you, Philip Sands. And I have to, I can't recommend it highly enough. I mean, part, it's very personal for me because he's he's talking about being from a, you know, from a family who was a Jewish Pole uh, and, and, and what happened to all his family. But, but it's not a Holocaust book in that sense, although, that, of course, it touches on that. It's about where, where genocide was first defined or how the term genocide was first defined and how it was struggled to become accepted by the international community as a crime. And how, um, and how the international treaty of you know human rights was also born out of the kind of, uh, of, the, of the genocide of the Nazis, and 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 it. But it's told through him, and like he going through all these photographs, he's been bequeathed, having come from a family, and having having them all wiped out, and um, only having a few clues and photographs, and and and, and tracking them back. So he weaves this incredible story of his own personal story of trying to find out about where his family went and how they got killed, but also how these international laws that now protect us and, and perhaps don't protect enough people in the world, you see it going on now in Myanmar, um, have, were born and they're very recent. And, and that, that, to me, you know, it was, it's a really powerful book, very, very, very highly recommend it as a read. It sounds really heavy, but it's incredibly just gripping. It's, it sort of reads like a thriller and you really, you know, you, it's, it's quite hard to put down. Uh, so anyway, that's what I've been reading. It's great. And uh, Kevin? So I'm, I'm reading this book at the moment and it was a wonderful book. So it's called Boyd, the vice pilot who changed the art of war, which sounds like one of those boys' own adventure books, but actually this, this biography of uh, this fighter pilot who comes through the 1950s and he's an uncompromising character. He probably was not much fun, you know, to sit next to at a dinner table. He was quite a difficult human being. And he's, he's very, uh, uh, you know, unconventionally intelligent. So he's amazing athlete, amazing at flying planes and eventually uh, turns around to the United States Air Force and tells them that all the planes they're designing are wrong. And, 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 uh, and, and sort of, and in... You can imagine what it's like to try and go up against the United States Air Force, the United States Navy, as a you know someone coming up through the ranks and saying you're wrong, everything's wrong, 
I know how to build planes because I've been flying them. And actually, what I love about it is, A, it is the triumph of a person's experience over sort of this very academic and distance view of a thing. So, you know, this real experience of this individual translates into the design of what then become very beautiful and the modern-day equivalents of spitfires, really. Uh, and, and B, he is, you know, the, the, the biographer Robert Curran pulls no punches. You know, he talks about how he is... A, and people find him enormously difficult. When he has an idea, he'll ring his collaborators, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning and then talk at them for, for another hour uh, just because that's what he wants to do at that moment. And it sort of speaks to that idea that, you know, progress isn't always made by reasonable people. So, so, so I, I, I do, I, you know, he's a fascinating character. And it's not that he's particularly likeable, but he does affect change. And from a direction which isn't a conventional direction, he hasn't had this amazing Ivy League schooling. He comes up, he has this very visceral experience of flying these fighter planes from the 1950s, which, you know, 1950s was a bad time in aerodynamics. People knew how to put big power plants into vehicles. They didn't really understand how to keep them in the air. And the best way to find out because there was no real computer modeling and very rudimentary air uh, wind tunnel, was to put test pilots in them and put them into the sky and hope they stayed alive long enough to give them some useful information. And, and, and so uh, I love it for all those reasons. I haven't quite finished it yet, but it's this tortured character who is trying to make himself heard from the position of someone who's in the reality of this moment against a bunch of people who are you know, designing you know, uh, missions and planes on paper. Thanks very much. That's, uh, thanks very much, everyone, for coming down. And uh, I've been reading this because I only just bought it uh, about uh, two hours ago, just because I did judge the book by the cover. It's called uh, Catataxics. I don't even know what it meant, but I thought, what a lovely cover. And uh, it turns <laughs> oh. out it's about trying to deal with the change of scale in terms of as, as civilization changes. Suddenly, you're and it's uh, the first chapter deals with leafcutter ants, uh, the deaths of rhinoceroses, and uh, euthanasia. So it's all over the place. It's great. <laughs> Oh, um, I just started somebody reading... Somebody I used to know by Wendy Mitchell, by the way, is the uh, poetry Wendy book. Wendy Mitchell was the... Uh, so, Wendy Mitchell's uh, uh, autobiography uh, uh, about the moment of realising that uh, she was dealing with dementia and then how she's... Uh, uh, how it's changed her life is, um, yeah, really worth... I haven't read it, like I said, I've only heard the, the Radio 4 adaptation. It was fantastic. I just started reading uh, Moneyland by... Is it Olive Burrows? Um, and it's really fun. It's about um, oligarchs hiding money around the world and about corruption and about what people buy with their corrupt stuff. And he's like, well, a lot of economists have proven how wrong this is, but I'm a journalist, so I'm going to tell you salacious stories about it. And I'm like, oh, yes, please. Oh, I thought it was going to turn out oligarchs were nice. They were just secretly burying stuff like Kit Williams' masquerade. And then they'd bring out a book and you could work out where the gold oh, was Oh, the buried. golden hair. Yeah. Um, also, this is great. God Gardens of Glass, uh, which is the um, some of the cartoon work of uh, Lando. Uh, it's by Breakdown Press, and it's these fantastic. There's no uh, dialogue in any of the comic strips at all. They're these kind of sometimes dystopian visions of uh, of the future or the, the well, perhaps a very near future, and it's absolutely amazing. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Trent Burton for uh, producing this particular episode and every single other episode of uh, Book Shambles, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, you can support this by going to. To, uh, Patreon and uh, you can also find out where all the other episodes are we've got episodes coming up uh, or they may have even come out in fact with Neil Gaiman and uh, Ian Rankin and many 
others. And thank you again to... Uh, to it, was a bit, it was a bit like a monkey cage there, wasn't it? It was like half and half. It was kind of monkey shambles. Uh, I'm quite, uh, thank you very much to Mark and Kevin, and thank you very much, uh, Josie, for, for leaving your... I was going to say your maternal bed. But, it's uh, so that, true, I barely leave it. But a maternal bed sounds... I don't know, it sounds more like something that Margaret Rutherford would have been in, and, uh, which is not a bad thing at all. Um, thanks very much for coming down as well. Thanks to the London Podcast Festival. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening, and we should add that uh, Robin's quest to get rid of a thousand books he was talking about. Uh, we filmed that, and that is up on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles, or you can check it out on the Cosmic Shambles site. And much like these episodes, there's an extended version of that for Patreon supporters. So go check out patreon.com slash bookshambles as well. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. That really helps us out. And we'll be back next week with uh, the final episode that was recorded at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, where our guests were the writing duo of Ambrose Parry and the comedian Mark Watson. Until then, have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Thank you.